Amen. You may be seated. And uh, as you're seated, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how to enter into the various kinds of seasons that make up our life with God and uh, how hard it can be to transition from one season to another. This morning, there's one more kind of transition that we need to talk about, which is fundamental to our life together with Jesus, and that is the transition to forgiveness. One of the hardest things for us to do is see someone who has hurt us or betrayed us or has hurt and betrayed those we love and watch them come to Jesus and find forgiveness from Jesus. And it's hard because we know that our calling as Christians is to join Jesus in forgiving the people he's forgiven. And that means that we have to face our own fear and mistrust and the vulnerability that forgiveness always involves. Jesus understands. He understands how hard it is to transition from a relationship of hostility to a relationship of peace. And Jesus also understands the other person's fears too. He understands their fears that they won't really be welcomed by Jesus' people because of the sins they've committed if they repent. I think we've all had struggles on both sides of this equation. We've all had times, I think, uh, where we've said something like, maybe Jesus will forgive me, but I don't think they will. Or something like, Jesus can probably forgive them, but I don't think I can. Both statements are rooted in a fear about how and if Jesus can transition his people from hurt to forgiveness and from a place of separation from God's people to a place of unity with God's people through the good news, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, these kinds of transitions are at the heart of God's gospel project, and they are at the very core and center of what it means to be a Christian and to be a church of Jesus Christ. Uh, but they are, let's just be honest, one of the hardest transitions to make for us as individuals and as a congregation. And so this morning, Jesus wants to give us some tools to make that transition by faith. He wants to teach us what to look for in someone's life so that we can see each other with the eyes of Christ and thus shift our view of each other from one of rejection, hostility, and distrust to one of welcome and love and of growing trust. He wants to give us the tools to transition with him into a life of forgiveness with each other. So let's get those tools. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Let's hear God's word. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, 
If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt? And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's follow the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word, which is life and light to us. But Lord, we know it will only achieve these things if your spirit blesses it. If it blesses the preaching, if it blesses the hearing, if it blesses it by a uh, rooting it deeply in our hearts and by causing it to bear fruit in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to bless us as we reflect on your word this morning. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage is a continuation of the story we've been reading for the last two weeks. This dinner takes place right after Jesus finishes talking about our need to enter well into the different seasons that our life with God will have so that we can become, as we talked about last Sunday, wisdom's mature adult children who are skilled in godliness, able to move in and out of each season well and to live well within each season. And there's few things more important to living with God well than being able to give and receive forgiveness. This is a skill that Jesus wants us to be able to exercise regardless of the season that we're in. And so immediately after these lessons, Jesus is invited over to a Pharisee's house for dinner by a man who we learn is named Simon. And then we're told that this woman arrives at Simon's house and engages in this surprising act of worship to Jesus and that Jesus welcomes it, but Simon rejects it. In fact, he doesn't simply reject it. It seems to repulse him a little bit, doesn't it? And so we have to ask ourselves, why does Simon reject this woman's worship of Jesus? Well, we're given two details about her that tell us why. We're told in verse 37 that she was a woman of the city. And we're told in verse 39 that she is a sinner. Now, a common way to put these details together is to say that this woman was a prostitute or had committed some kind of sexual sin. That's not an impossible reading, but it does rely on an unfounded 
and possibly totally fabricated belief that uh, a woman of the city is an ancient euphemism for that occupation. That simply does not appear to be the case. And I could not track down any documentary evidence at all for that. In fact, I, I found just the opposite. Also, I don't think that uh, that would explain Simon's reaction. If someone who's engaged in sexual immorality were to walk up to Jesus, fall at his feet, ask for forgiveness, which is exactly as we'll see what she's doing, I don't think that would aim at anger Simon because Simon was a Pharisee. And Pharisaism was a reform movement within first century Judaism that was aimed at calling Jews, like this woman, to repentance and to restoring them to the people of God. And so it seems like it would fall right within the wheelhouse of someone like Simon to have someone like this repent. And also the law had provisions for restoring the sexually immoral through sacrifices and ceremonial cleansings. So there's you know, plenty of legal biblical precedent. And then also the Bible is full of stories about prostitutes coming to faith or coming back to faith in Jesus. And you could just think of Rahab, right, at the, the wall of, of Jericho. Just like if a prostitute came into our church right now and asked for forgiveness, we would not be repelled. We would rejoice. Uh, I don't see Simon being bothered particularly by something with a sexually immoral past asking for forgiveness. Okay, then, so what's the deal? Well, here's, here's what I think is going on. Most likely, I think Simon feels betrayed by her or sees God's people as being in danger from her. Or maybe he sees her even as a major opponent to the work of God in the world. Why do I say that? Well, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, you'll see that earlier Jesus had been in the city of Capernaum. But then in verse 11, you'll see that this time he had, uh, time of this dinner, he had entered a town called Nain. It seems to me that since Nain is called a town that the city most likely referred to is Capernaum. And without getting into too many details, Capernaum was a city known for drawing God's people away from their faith. Uh, a comparison for us might be something like Las Vegas or New Orleans. Right? These are cities that are so full of temptation and opposition, where there are so few churches and Christians that Christians who move there struggle mightily to maintain their faith in Christ and oftentimes end up abandoning their faith, particularly in Las Vegas. First century Jews had a very similar relationship to Capernaum for very similar reasons. So given that it's possible, maybe even likely, that while in Capernaum she'd given up the outward markings of her identity as a member of God's people, it's also possible she stopped worshiping at the synagogue, worshiping with God's people. It's also possible she stopped tithing and contributing to the financial and material and spiritual needs of God's people, so abandoning the saints. See, all that to say that her location and status as a sinner could mean that she rejected the physical, visible, financial, sacrificial expressions of faith that are necessary to life with God and to our witness to the world. Related to that, it's also possible that she has started worshiping idols instead of God, so exchanging her relationship with Jesus for a relationship with Zeus or someone else. Now, all of that would be bad for her personally, right? But given the fact that the Pharisee knows who she is, right? 
This is going to surprise you. There are more than seven Jews back when Jesus was living in Galilee. (laughs) The fact that the Pharisee knows who she is and is surprised that Jesus does not appear to know who she is means that she was probably pretty famous in her day. And therefore, the danger was magnified because she had influence. Maybe she's even encouraged people in her rejecting some or all of the faith. And so for us, we might think of uh, celebrity Christians who abandon the faith and then use their platform to draw other Christians away from faith in God. Or we might also think of a pastor who abandons the faith in a very public way, takes a bunch of people from the congregation with him into unbelief, and then starts writing books and putting out YouTube videos, attacking the church, trying to draw more and more people away from Christ. Simon's reaction is much more consistent with a person who has been a real threat, or at least a real problem to the Pharisees' good efforts at trying to bring about reform and repentance and restoration of God's people. I have one more possibility to add. This was particularly interesting as I studied this week. In the ancient world, temples would give loans to people. And as one scholar has shown, uh, some Jews, some of God's people, chose to take loans from temples to ancient idols like Zeus or Artemis. And this happened often enough that it was actually written about by God's people at the time. And in those writings, those Jews and those God-fearers who took loans from idol temples were called sinners. Because not only had they tethered themselves to idolatry, even if they didn't worship the idol, they were financing idolatry. And given that debts were usually paid off over time, They financed it for years and years and maybe even saddling their own children with the obligation to give Zeus money if they died before paying it off because debts transferred from one generation to another in the ancient world. And by the way, this also makes sense of why Jesus used a debtor parable in this particular situation. See, all of these are possibilities. None of them can be said with any kind of definitive certainness, but they would show us why she would get this kind of reaction from Simon. Right? She's betrayed us. She's abandoned us. She's opposed us, or at least she's funded the people who've opposed us. She's, she's kept people, maybe even Simon's children, maybe his grandchildren, maybe his friend's children, maybe nieces and nephews, from meeting God and from finding forgiveness. All of these are reasons why Simon would respond as he does in verse 39. If this man was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for he, she is a sinner. You see, at the heart of this encounter is someone who has hurt people, who has betrayed them, who has betrayed God, maybe even endangered the existence of the church in some way. How can that person be allowed to touch Jesus? How can I let Jesus touch me and be with me after he's allowed her so close to him. Doesn't he know how dangerous she is? And that brings us to the way then that Jesus starts moving Simon to consider joining him and transitioning to forgiving her. But first remember, before Simon says any of this, this woman has been engaged in an extraordinary act of worship. Look back at verses 37 to 38. I'm going to read those again. 
And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Just to highlight her actions here, notice that she stands behind Jesus, which means she takes the position of a disciple. Right? A disciple is someone who stands behind Jesus so that he or she can follow Jesus. A disciple is also someone who sits at Jesus' feet. And where is she? Well, the text has this very interesting way of putting it, doesn't it? She's, she stands behind him at his feet, right? So she's not simply standing behind him, but eventually sitting at his feet. And she's weeping. She weeps so much that she is able to wash the dirt from Jesus' feet with her own tears. Uh, so this woman is sobbing, right? Do, you, do people talk about ugly crying anymore? Uh, you, you know, when you cry so much, your face is just like really distorted and there's snot running out of your nose and it's, you know, real ugly. Uh, she's weeping. She's ugly crying. That is what she's doing. And then we're told that she wiped his feet with her own hair. And for that to happen, her hair uh, couldn't be braided. It couldn't be tied up. It had to hang loose. And I learned as I studied this that in Jesus' day, loose hair was a sign of grieving and mourning. And then she kisses his feet and anoints them with oil. To kiss someone's feet was a way of asking someone who is greater in authority than you to show you mercy and kindness. It's a way of begging for forgiveness. She is asking Jesus, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, for forgiveness and mercy. And then anointing their feet with oil appears to be a way of asking someone who is greater in authority than you for friendship and to remember you as their friend when they walk away. And this reveals her heart's desire to be Jesus' friend. This, by the way, is also exactly the meaning later on in the Gospels when it's Mary? Is it Mary? I just Mary or Martha, when she falls at Jesus' feet and anoints Jesus' feet with, feet with oil and Judas gets upset because, you know, we could have, she could have said that, sold it and sent it to the poor and Jesus says, leave her alone. She's doing this for my departure. What she is doing, she's understood in a way that disciples haven't what Jesus is going to do. And he's saying, I want you to be my friend. Remember my friendship when you go to the cross. So what this woman here in our passage is saying is Jesus Take me as your disciple. Teach me how to follow you. I'm sorry, but I ask for your forgiveness for my sins. And I want to be your friend. Remember me when you leave this place. Simon has seen all of this. But because of his hurt and his anger, he can't get his heart around what's happening right in front of him in the most obvious way you can imagine. You cannot cry the dirt off someone's feet quietly. Right? Simon needs to transition from anger to forgiveness, from, from bitterness 
to love and hospitality. Just as we all need to do if we are going to live well with Jesus and follow him faithfully. And that's why Jesus here takes Simon's attention away from this woman for a moment in verses 40 to 43, and he centers it instead on the story about two people who owed a debt to a single moneylender. One owed 500 denarii, and a denarii was a day's wage, so she owed uh, more than you could make in just about a year and a half, right? 500 days worth of wages. And another person who owed 50 denarii, so what a person can make in a little more than a month. Both have their debts canceled. Who loves the money lender more? The one who owed the bigger debt. Now, I want you to notice some things about this parable. Notice that the parable focuses on each debtor's relationship to the money lender. The money lenders aren't looking at each other. The money, excuse me, the, the debtors aren't looking at each other. The debtors aren't looking at their relationship to each other. It's not about the debtor's relationship to the larger community. The parable doesn't focus on the need for the larger community to sort of have a say in whether or not these significantly indebted people are forgiven. It's about the debtor's relationship to the money lender. And on the way, each debtor loves the money lender when he forgives their debts. And so one of the things Jesus is getting Simon to do is he's you know, obviously, Simon's not dumb, right? Obviously, each person in this parable represents Simon is the 50 denarii person, the woman's the 500 denarii person. He's getting Simon to realize what you need to do, what you need to stop doing, Simon, is looking at this woman and considering all her past actions. What you first need to do is look at me. And you need to ask yourself, what have I done for you? What is our relationship with like? Like? And then the next thing you need to do, Simon, the next thing you need to do is look and see, say, and what is my relationship like with her? Look at me and see the way I have forgiven your sins. Then look at me and see whether or not I am looking at her in forgiveness too. Get your eyes off each other. Put them on Jesus. And then look at each other through the eyes of Jesus as he makes decisions about who to forgive and who not to forgive. So the point of the parable is the way each one loves the money lender for the forgiveness he's shown them and the way in which we learn to see each other through Jesus' own forgiveness. And then that point made, Jesus turns to Simon in verse 44 and he asks him this incredibly powerful question, do you see this woman Right? Do you see this debtor? Do you see the great need that she has for forgiveness? Do you see her love for me? Do you see this woman? And I imagine that that question stopped Simon's brain the way that putting a stick in a bicycle tire brings everything to a halt really fast. Uh, but let's be clear here. Before Jesus asked him that question, do you see this woman? The answer was very clearly no. He didn't see her. He did not see her love for Jesus. He didn't see her repentance. He didn't see her present actions, only her past actions. He didn't see someone asking, begging for a new relationship with God and God's people. He only saw her in terms of the old relationship that her actions had created. 
He did not see her as she was at the feet of Jesus. He didn't see her love for Jesus. And he didn't see Jesus' love for her. But he needed to. And so Jesus rehearses for Simon what he saw, but he didn't perceive so that he could understand why Jesus not only wasn't bothered that she was there, but welcomed her. As he says in verse 47, she loved much. And who is it that she loved much? Jesus. The one that she is begging for friendship and forgiveness from. See, the tools that Jesus gives us to help us transition to forgiveness is to look for a love of Jesus in someone's life, to look for their, at their repentance to Jesus, their desire to learn from him, to follow him, to be his friend. Because if they love Jesus at all, that is evidence of their forgiveness. Her sins are forgiven, and we know that because she loved much, and we are called to join him in that forgiving relationship. And the way we can get there to see whether or not they are looking at Jesus to find forgiveness is to stop looking in judgment at each other and instead look at Jesus and say, has Jesus forgiven me? What has Jesus forgiven me for? How much am I forgiven? And then from there, turning to look at each other and say, look, they're looking for the same thing that I need from Christ. And I need to join Jesus in his act of forgiveness. My friends, when people hurt us or betray us, it is hard to see them through anything but our own pain and our own suspicion, our own anger, our own fear. And if they come to church, if they come to Jesus, it's hard not to respond like Simon and ask ourselves, like, why would Jesus even let them come here? Doesn't he know how much they've hurt others? Doesn't he know how dangerous they are? Doesn't he know how much they've hurt me? Jesus understands that reaction. But here he tells us to step back, back and ask not only what have they done, but what are they doing? Are they positioning themselves as disciples? Are they trying to sit at his feet? Are they grieving their sins? Are they wanting Jesus' mercy? Do they want his friendship? Are they showing acts of love for Jesus? Because if they are, we are, ch- we are called to change the way that we view them. We're called to see them or learn to see them as new creations of God. And so work out that new creation life with them together. Just like what happened for us when Jesus forgave our debts and brought us in to his people. Now that is not easy. This is one of those sermons, I feel like most of my sermons are this way, where it's easier said than done, right? This is not easy. It takes time. It takes prayer. It takes daily prayer, lots of prayer. Is this not why Jesus included this line in his model prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? He knows that we have to sit with him in prayer frequently if we are going to join him in forgiveness. He knows that forgiveness is not something we can well up from within our own hearts by forcing it. 
right? It's not like lifting a heavy weight where if you just maybe grind through it, you get there. You can only give what you have received. And you need to sit at the feet of Jesus and receive his forgiveness for your sins and for this other person's sins so you can give it to them. It takes time. It takes prayer. It's not easy. It takes work. I mean, just think back a few weeks ago to the enmity we looked at between Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, right? Now, Simon was a zealot, a member of a group of people who literally terrorized and wanted to kill tax collectors like Matthew, who had this murderous relationship and how their relationship through Christ probably took decades to be fully healed. It was apparently fully healed, but it took time. It took prayer. It's not easy. The transition to a new life with Jesus together is usually a process. And that's okay because we're Jesus's disciples. And as the Bible so frequently tells us in so many different ways and places, we walk with him. We follow him on this journey and we learn from him so that we can be wisdom's mature adult children, skilled in godliness, skilled in forgiveness, able to extend to others the forgiveness we ourselves have received from Jesus and that Jesus has himself given to his people. One last thing. This will be quick. Uh, I said at the beginning uh, that this passage was also about transitioning to a belief that Jesus not only forgives you, but will transition his people into forgiveness for you also. It's not only about how we join Jesus in transitioning to forgiving others. It's also about trusting that Jesus will, in fact, bring his people along into that forgiveness and transition us all more fully into the body of Christ. Uh, At the end of our passage, what does Jesus assure this woman of? He tells her in verse 49, your sins are forgiven. He says to her, I will give you the mercy you begged for. And then he tells her in verse 50, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Don't read over that too quickly. Your faith has saved you, go in peace. For Jesus and for the Bible that he wrote, peace and friendship go together. There is no such thing as peace, real peace, without real friendship with God. Just as there isn't real Sabbath without life, delight, and communion with God. In fact, in the Bible, peace, shalom in the Old Testament, Irene, used to translate that in the New Testament, means conceptually a restored experience of that initial life with God which we had before the fall. It means a community of rest and love, a communion of relational, joyful peace. And so here at the end, what I believe Jesus is saying when he tells her to go in peace is he's telling her not only that she has peace with him, but that she will also have peace with his people. He's saying, while it might take my people a little time to change their view of you, My view has already changed. I see you as the person whose past choices will be met with my grace, whose brokenness will be healed by my resurrection power. I see you as my forgiven friend. 
And I will bring my people into that same vision so that we can live together in the redemptive peace of the gospel as a community of faith. My friends, I don't know if you're in a place this morning where you need to transition into the forgiveness of Jesus and his people, or if you need to transition to joining Jesus in forgiving his people. But wherever you are, Jesus is inviting us this morning to join him so that we can know and experience his peace in our lives in a real, lived out, Monday through Sunday way. And so let's follow him. Let's prayerfully devote ourselves to this task so that we can receive all the good things of forgiveness that Jesus has for us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, for, for your forgiveness and for making a place for us within your family. Uh, please help us to join you in forgiving each other as you have forgiven us. Help us to see each other as you see us, sinners who need forgiveness and life. And please help us for the sake of Christ and out of gratitude to you to love you much by showing your forgiving love to each other. And finally, Lord, where this transition is difficult and hard, please help us through your spirit and your people and your word uh, so that we can experience the fullness of your peace that you came to give us. Help us to and empower us to spend time with you in prayer so that we can uh, be trained by you. And help us, Lord, we pray, to train each other in this difficult but important work of living with you in forgiveness. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.